Good morning and welcome to our Law Gospel devotional for this February 23rd, 2021. In case you don't know who I am, I'm Eric Sorensen, pastor of Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, and also contributor to 1517 in numerous ways, including serving on their relations and development team. And uh, each Tuesday morning when we gather together, usually around eight in the morning, we gather to look at specifically God's two words, both his law and his gospel, through every passage of scripture that we can. And usually the way we do that is by looking at one of the texts for the upcoming Sunday in the lectionary. So sometimes I'll look at an Old Testament text, sometimes we'll look at an epistle, and sometimes we'll look at a psalm. Rarely do I look at the gospel because I assume that in many churches your pastor is going to preach on that, and I don't want to uh, take away any of his thunder for the upcoming Sunday. Not necessarily that I would be able to do it any better than he would, but you get the picture. And so what we do is we'll tend to uh, look at some slides that, uh, that detail for us some things about the passage and then look a little more in depth at the passage for us today. So, so with that being said, let's go ahead and pull up our slides for today. Um, and first of all, as always, I always like to point out the background and the setting for our passage. And this week it is Mark chapter 8, 27 through 38. That is the gospel text. Now, if you're familiar with this text, then you know that this is, of course, the story of when Peter confesses that Jesus is Lord, that he is the son of the living God. And initially in that passage, Jesus is quite happy with what Peter has said. He, he lauds him for having this revelation given to him by the Spirit of God, that Jesus is indeed more than just a common man. But it doesn't take long before the passage quickly descends into a whole different direction for Peter because... Jesus, as he, uh, yes, indeed, is Messiah, will then go on to tell his disciples that his job as Messiah is to face crucifixion and persecution. And Peter responds, of course, by trying to rebuke him, in which Jesus says the famous, albeit very blunt words, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the purposes of God in mind. I'm paraphrasing, but you know what I'm getting at. And Jesus makes a, such a seemingly rude declaration to Peter because Peter would stop him from accomplishing his mission. In other words, what Peter has on his mind is really a theology of glory. Uh, he still, even though he knows Jesus is Messiah, he's still got an expectation that Jesus as Messiah is here to conquer Rome or here to make sure that him and his disciples gain earthly power. And that is particularly precisely contrary to what Jesus came to do. No, Jesus's central mission was to die for sinners on the cross. And so Jesus really is reorient, reorienting Peter in this passage to get his focus on what it means that he has come to save sinners. Indeed, the, the purpose of Christ's ministry all hinges on this moment at the cross. And so in a meme that was made some years ago that tries to focus our attention there, it's a series of pictures of the crucified Christ with various captions. One of them says, this is what a life with purpose looks like. Another one says, this is what a victorious life look, looks like. This is what obedience looks like. This is what God's blessing to you look like. And the purpose of this uh, meme, as it were, or this this. Uh, this picture is to get us focused on what Jesus wants Peter and the disciples focused on, that this indeed is where the power of God is shown. 
And so that's a little background for our passage that is really all about the crucifixion today. And that passage is, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, my absolute favorite passage in the entire Bible. So I feel really, really lucky, or I'll use the more spiritual word, blessed to go over this passage with you today because it is just meat and potatoes for me. It is something that inspires praise from me every time I look at it. And that passage is Romans 5, 1 through 11, a passage that the good Dr. Luther would say in the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. Now, if Luther says something like that about a text of scripture, then it does us well to listen very carefully to its contents. And so we begin in verse one, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, always important to remember the word justified in scripture is really another way of just saying declared righteous. Again, not because of anything righteous in and of ourselves. No, it is a forensic declaration from God that we are seen as righteous, even though we may still have and indeed do still have ongoing and besetting unrighteousness in our lives as of now. This hits on something that we tend to hit on a lot, that as Christians, we are both simultaneously saint and sinner. Through faith in Christ, we are declared to be complete saints. And yet still in this wretched body of death, as Paul calls it, we are all too aware of our imperfection. Nevertheless, the good news that this passage starts off with is that we are declared righteous, justified in the sight of God, and therefore have peace with him. Since we are justified, we stand in his grace with the sure hope of heaven. That's what he means when he goes on to verse two and says, through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That last part there, in hope of the glory of God, is actually really talking about our heavenly home, our eternal home. And the, the idea is because we have been declared righteous, going back to verse one, we now also stand in this life filled with hope because we know that heaven is ours. We know it. It's been promised to us and God does not break promises. And so as Robin Williams displays for us in a movie that is not very accurate about heaven, I don't think. Nevertheless, it's a movie about heaven, so I chose it. Heaven is our reward. It's coming for us. And because heaven is certain, Paul writes in verses three through five, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So because we're justified, because we know that heaven is certain for us, this now pours into our life as we live it now and gives us the ability to suffer, to endure, and through that endurance, character is built and hope is even more certain. When I think about this, I can't help but think about running a race. 
maybe the most famous uh, picture of running a race that I've come across in my lifetime was, of course, the the runner Derek Redmond in the Olympics, who was was nearly a favorite to win the race. And then as the race began, he pulled a hamstring and it was clear that his Olympic dreams would die. Well, what happened? Well, his father ran out from behind the stands, caught up to Derek in the midst of security, trying to push him away and frankly, helped carry him all the way to the finish line. There's a sense in which our knowledge of what's coming for us, the reality of what our Heavenly Father has prepared for us on account of Christ, propels us to move forward even in the midst of suffering and difficulty and, 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 and challenge. And, and through going through this challenge, the closer we get to the finish line, the more certain our hope is of what's coming. That's the idea that Paul is presenting here to us. But then, of course, he moves on to how it is sinners can actually be justified. I mean, how is it? What are the mechanics of this? What are, what, how does this all work? Well, this is where he really gets into the real meat of the passage. And I'm telling you, it doesn't get better than this, my friends. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. How is it that sinners like us can have any hope of heavenly rewards? Again, not because of anything we've done, but because all of what Christ has done. He's accomplished everything on our behalf. He has indeed taken the wrath that we deserve on his cross, and he does so out of great love for you out of great love for me. Notice here, it's so, so important. It's the heart, I'm telling you, it's the very heart of the gospel. That the passage says it wasn't after we got strong enough that God finally decided, okay, it's the right time, I'll send my son. They've proven their obedience. They've proven their worthiness. No, it's in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our ungodliness, in the midst of our being enemies of God, that God in great love for us sends his son. Paul even acknowledges, yeah, it might be possible in this world to conceive of somebody laying down their life for a good guy. But God shows his love in that he lays down his life for the very people who are his enemies rebels against his rule. That's how great God's love is for, it, for us, that he makes it possible, not even possible, that he in fact does exchange our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Jesus won for us at the cross and in his resurrection. But it gets better still. Paul continues, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Yes, folks, it's true. What this passage is declaring to us is that God doesn't begrudgingly send his son to save us. 
Jesus doesn't begrudgingly go to the cross. No, it's for the joy set before him. And the joy set before him is following his father's lead so that he would have you and I as his brothers and as fellow heirs of God's kingdom. Yes, and don't get it backwards. It is God's love that first motivates him to send the son. It is God's love that causes the son to come with great joy at the idea of saving us so that all of us prodigals, or for that matter, all of us elder brothers that may have been resistant to going into the party at some point, all are seen as sons and daughters of the king. No longer is he this distant judge, but no, God is now our father who embraces us and robes us in the righteousness of Jesus and gives us the signet ring, uh, bestowing upon us his authority and giving us the shoes of the gospel of peace so that we would walk as sons and daughters renewed in reconciliation again to him. And so, so it's a glorious passage, and I could just read it without saying anything else, and you, you'd get it. It's so, so great. It's, you can see why it's my favorite passage. And yet the, the question that we deal with in this devotion every week is where are the, where's the law and where's the gospel? And you might be saying, along with Jerry Maguire in this meme, show me the law. Like, where is it? Because it seems like it's just one great declaration of good news after another. That's true. That is true. And that's why we need to remember that sometimes the law is seen implicitly in a text. That even though in the text itself there might not be specific commands given, or for that matter, specific condemnations given for the ways that we've fallen, nevertheless, there's still an acknowledgement of why this gospel has to happen. N notice again the language of the texts. Uh, we're told that, that there will be suffering in this life. That is an inevitable result of living in a fallen world, that we suffer. We're told that we're weak. We're unable. We don't have the strength necessary to do what we need to do in order to save ourselves. We're told that we're ungodly. So it's not just a matter of trying. No, we haven't even tried, that we're sinners, that we're enemies. I mean, we're given some pretty significant names here that would suggest that we're very adversarial, naturally to God. That is all exactly what the law proclaims to us. The law shows us this reality when it declares that we ought not do something and we recognize we have, or when it tells us we should do something and we recognize we haven't. It declares us to be sinners, enemies, rebels, totally condemned and in need desperately of salvation from on high. I've been watching a show lately called The Sinner. And really the, the show explores all the different dynamics that go into a person falling far from grace. It's an interesting show. I wouldn't say it's the best show I've ever seen. But one thing that's very clear uh, abundantly in the show is it has a very low anthropology. Uh, human beings are seen for what they are, and that is flawed, fallen, broken. Whatever, whatever term you want to use, it fits. And yet, what do we find in this passage again? The gospel proclaiming to us 
that in spite of our sin, even while we're in the midst of running away from God, let me make it very concrete, even while we're in the midst of snorting cocaine, even while we we were in the midst of uh, giving away our bodies to someone that we shouldn't, even when we were in the midst of stealing, even when we were in the midst, you fill in the blank, whatever sins you have, whatever sins you struggle with, even while you were in the midst of those things, God sent his son to redeem us because he loves us. The picture on this last slide here is one of my favorite pictures. It's a piece of art by a friend of mine named Scott Erickson. And I actually have it printed up on a shirt. Some of you who have seen me in person have probably seen me wear that shirt as I wear it often. But I love the picture in its simplicity because it details exactly what happens when someone forgives and indeed exactly what happened when Christ forgave us. You'll notice that the man with arrows in his back is embracing the man who has clearly shot him with arrows in his back. Indeed, at the cross of Christ, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as they are pounding the nails in and even mocking him. Yes, the good news, the good news that is given to us in the scriptures is that though we were ungodly, God has done everything necessary to declare us righteous in spite of ourselves and make us fit for heaven forever. And that is the good news that we celebrate today as we enter back into this second weekend of Lent. I pray that you would have a a wonderful week, that you would be blessed by the word you've heard today and encouraged. May God's grace carry you forward each and every day. God bless you.